Hello there, everybody. Well, this is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Axe Podcast. Today we're gonna we're gonna talk about the grand narrative. What do I mean by narrative, and why we have to kind of beware following the narrative? And in fact, sometimes we need to actually crush the narrative. Uh, if you're bewildered by what I mean by narrative, we'll just stay tuned. I'll have a definition for you. And before we get to that, let's get to this, a, uh, an Ave Maria. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. <laughs> So I've been really kind of struggling uh, to get this particular episode made. Uh, my my original intent was to kind of revisit the uh, Beatle documentary "Get Back" and to give my kind of further opinions on it. Uh, "Get Back" uh, was a uh, or is a, a documentary again about the Beatles that was released uh, back around Thanksgiving on Disney Plus. And I just found that every time I started one of these videos up, I was getting kind of bogged down and just a lot of information that I'm not sure that any of you are really going to be that interested in. You know, there's plenty of kind of geeks out there who like to talk about the Beatles and like to talk about really obscure aspects of their history and go into the the really fine comb details of uh, their life and loves and music. And, you know, you don't need one more geek. I, I definitely am a music geek. There's no doubt about that. But you, you guys don't need one more. And there's certainly those out there that are more knowledgeable than myself. But, you know, as I was myself listening to all those geeks on on YouTube and and reading some other posts, what I what I came to to see very quickly was that most of the commentary and comment on Get Back revolved around uh, debunking the commonly held narrative of the Beatles' breakup, and there seemed to be a lot of people invested in trying to say that in January of 1969, when Get Back was filmed. Uh, that the Beatles indeed were not breaking up, as again many people would contend, and indeed, as the four members of the group themselves have talked about over the years, see, even they got it wrong. Uh, and I've heard a lot of what seem to be kind of convoluted uh, and really just ridiculous explanations for why, you know. Even they don't really understand that they weren't really breaking up in 1970. Uh, but for whatever reason, and I, don't, I really don't know why, there just seemed to be a lot of people just really interested and, again, um, uh, invested in saying that, no, the Beatles weren't really breaking up, that uh, they were right as rain, and if there appear to be any conflicts, these are just the normal conflicts that affect any any band any, you know, four creative people getting together in a studio and trying to get something done. All right, whatever. 
you know, I don't, I don't buy it. But again, that's neither here nor there. But it was this idea of the narrative and either accepting or rejecting the narrative that I found very fascinating. And that there are many people invested, if you will, in defending or, in this case, really mainly debunking the accepted narrative. Now, I've been using this word narrative a great deal, and you might be wondering, why is he using the word so much? And what exactly does he mean by, by narrative? Well, you know, a narrative in its simplest meaning has to do with just telling a story, storytelling. Any kind of storytelling involves a narrative and some type of what we call narrative structure. If we look at the scripture, most of the scripture, I would say, probably, yeah, probably most of the scripture is made up of, of narrative. I know that the prophets are a big chunk of the Old Testament, so that you know, might put a lie to what I'm saying. But anyway, a good, a good portion, a healthy portion of the scripture is narrative, is telling a story. A story of Israel, the story of, you know, Jesus, the story of the early church. And it's also mixed in with what we would call a discourse. So discourse is kind of like what I'm doing here with you right now. I'm kind of talking about abstract ideas. I'm not really telling you a story. There are no characters here. It's... You might even say that I'm meandering a little bit. <laughs> and you'd wish that I'd get to the point. Uh, but but uh, these but a, a discourse tends to be, again, just the laying out of ideas in some in some form. Again, that does not involve a narrative. Now Jesus is very interesting. He taught in discourses. He did conduct, you know, he did get up and he did sometimes speak uh, in, in abstract ideas. But he also understood very clearly the power of the narrative and the power of story. And so he used parables in order to make his point. And in fact, you know, some concepts like the kingdom of God, we really only really have parables. You know, he really doesn't explain what the kingdom of God is. Uh, again, in, in terms of, of concepts or ideas, he refers to them in terms of uh, in terms of stories, or you know, in terms of analogies. He understood that that the story will stick with a person in a way that a discourse may not. And so, again, in Scripture, there are many different genre of, of writing in Scripture. But again, when we look specifically at the Gospels, mainly what they're made up of are narratives, discourses, and parables. Okay, And again, parables and narratives basically being the same thing. Though when we talk about the narrative portion, we're talking about, okay, Jesus starting here and going there. And parables are more of just, again, the stories that Jesus tells in order to 
put his point across. Now, what I am talking about in terms of a narrative, or sometimes called a, a meta-narrative or the grand narrative, is, you know, meta-narrative really means, you know, beyond the story or above the story or, you know, greater than the story. It's sometimes been described as a story about a story. It's a, if you will, it's a, a it's a structure, a lens through which we analyze history and current events. We, we will say that, you know, some will say that history is just a series of conflicts between the op- oppressors and the oppressed. And that if you really want to understand any moment in history, or if you really want to analyze current events and what's going on in the world, all you have to do is look at it through this lens of oppressor and oppressed. And, you know, the, the, back in the day, the, you know, the oppressor was usually identified with capitalists and those who controlled the money. And the oppressed were the proletariat, the kind of common person, you know, working person. And that you have this constant conflict. And that's how really how what history is. And today it's been more broadened out. It's not so much talked about uh, in terms of, uh, uh, it's not talked of really so much uh, in terms of economics as it, really is in terms of just a particular group that you're a member of, some oppressed group. It could be racial. It could involve sexual orientation. It could involve ethnicity. It, it could involve any number of things. But if, if it could involve gender. But again, it's setting up that one side is the oppressor, the other side is the oppressed. And so history, again, follows this sort of pattern. Uh, that's a bit of an extreme, these are a bit of extreme examples, but they really do have an effect on us today and right now, because in many ways, the, you know, the news that's reported or not reported, uh, sometimes really does boil down to how does it match up with the accepted narrative, with who usually are considered the oppressors and who are usually considered the oppressed. And if a story fits the narrative, it's reported. If the story really doesn't fit the narrative, if let's say the roles are reversed, then either the story is not going to be reported or it's not going to be given as much attention. It might be mentioned, but it's not really something that's going to be promoted and put out there. And, you know, but this isn't the only form of narrative. And it's not even necessarily the only form of kind of grand narrative or historical lens that concerns me the most or that I want to talk about maybe more specifically today. You know, when it comes to the church, there are many narratives out there that have just been sort of floated out there and accepted. One of the very popular narratives is that the church is anti-science and anti-medicine. 
another narrative really concerns uh, uh, the Crusades and how Christian Europe conducted the Crusades. This sort of fits in a little more neatly into this other kind of narrative, this other meta-narrative that I spoke of in terms of oppressors and oppressed, that the Europeans were the oppressors and the Islamic world were, was being oppressed by them by, by way of these crusades. You know, when it, when it comes to that, that first kind of narrative or that first historical lens, this idea that the church is, is anti-science or anti-medicine, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I was watching a, one of those videos on YouTube where you get uh, an expert, let's say you get the FBI agent, and they show him a series of uh, movie clips from films about the FBI or involving crime. And they'll kind of break down to you, yeah, that's accurate, or no, that's really not accurate. We don't do that at all. <laughs> well, I was watching one of those videos that featured Dr. Eleanor Janega. Now, Dr. Janega is a uh, professor at the London School of Economics. She's a medievalist. And it was kind of, again, it's all based on, on one you know relatively short video. And I've been trying to find kind of more of her writings, but she, she, you know, she's present on social media, but she's, I, I haven't been able to really find articles by her, but I, but just from judging her, her, um, her Twitter, uh, page or Twitter profile, I can tell you that we probably would not agree on a lot of things. We would probably be on opposite sides of many different, uh, uh, issues, uh, but what I will say is is that uh, she is an historian. She is not one who simply plugs in a narrative and you know whatever fits the narrative is good, whatever doesn't fit the narrative, yeah, she ignores. So she's watching these movie clips, and she's a bit of a colorful individual. She's watching these movie clips, and naturally they show the movie clip of the... Uh, intrepid doctors trying to uh, advance medical science in the face of ignorance and the church, uh, you know, trying to suppress uh, their efforts, especially in terms of trying to examine cadavers. You know, I, I learned this in school that, you know, the church was against the examining of cadavers because not because it was considered necromancy or, but just that it was just disrespectful, you know, to the, to the, to the corpse as being, you know, what was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and Dr. Janeg is just sitting there going, nah, didn't happen that way. <laughs> not only, not only was the, the, the church in favor of, uh, uh, the, not, not only did the church not suppress, uh, medical research, they actually promoted hospitals and promoted medicine. You know, it didn't happen that way. And then there's another movie where again, they, you know, you, You've got these women being oppressed as witches and, again, you know, evil churchmen breaking down doors in order to get it at, at these supposed witches. And Dr. Janega is like, nah, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> there were no real witch hunts. 
you weren't that important. That was her. That was her line. You weren't that important. You didn't have the church knocking down doors looking for witches. It didn't happen that way. Now, what I can tell you about what I do, what I do know, at least what I've read about witch hunts, uh, is that they really didn't happen during the Middle Ages. That that's probably the first uh, misnomer, is that they didn't happen during the Middle Ages. There were witch, witch hunts in the the 17th and 18th centuries. They were not limited to any particular religious group. Um, you know, one of the one of the articles I was reading talked about that. It, it wasn't so much. It really had to do with region. Uh, you know, we, Saxony and portions of Germany and England and things you had uh, Catholic areas that conducted witch hunts, but you also had a lot of Protestant areas that conducted witch hunts. Uh, I, what I found kind of ironic is that Italy, which even to this day is a hotbed of, of witchcraft, and if you go around the Turin area, is a, a center of, of uh, you know, devil worship and demonic activity, uh, Italy really didn't experience witch hunts at all, and in fact the Holy See kind of yawned at it. They didn't think it was really a, a big issue. Or at least it wasn't like some type of conspiratorial issue that they felt they needed to, to go after. So, like I said, while my intuition tells me that Dr. Janega and I wouldn't agree on much, uh, I could say, again, at least for my, my little exposure to her, I think she's fair <laughs> anyway. And, you know, again, she's really an historian. She's following the facts and not allowing a narrative to... Uh, to influence what she thinks or what, what she teaches. You know, the, the other great issue is the Crusades. And again, you could do a whole series of, of you know, these episodes just on, on the Crusades. You know, the, the, the problem, you know, there uh, is that there just is a, just a lot of misinformation and it's hard to know where to begin with it. And again, it's one of those things that it's not so much defending the Crusades or, you know, saying that it was good that, you know, Europe put these armies together, you know, and went to fight, you know, the Muslims. But it's the, you know, put the whole thing in context of, you know, the fact that the earliest and most vibrant Christian communities actually were not in Europe, but were in North Africa and what is today the Middle East. And that if you know if if you're in the year 400 or 500, uh, again the great Christian centers are Alexandria and Jerusalem, and you know, again you're talking about areas of of North Africa. You know, there's a whole lot of controversy today about Latin and the Latin Mass and all that stuff. You know, it, it was more North Africa that really uh, preserved and promoted Latin. More than even Rome itself, uh, Greek was considered the, you know, the the language, the universal language, and the language of the of the educated, uh, and even into kind of Christian times, while you know, you know, Latin might have been the lingua franca in the in the western part of the empire, uh, among the educated class, it was still Greek was still considered the the more important language, as was in the eastern part of the empire. And that really, it's North Africa that uh, think of Saint Augustine and and others, the 
that really were the ones who wrote a great deal in Latin and, and promoted Latin and really was the driver in Latin becoming the dominant language. But so you move, but you move forward two hundred years. You know, if you go from let's say five hundred to seven hundred, you know now all of a sudden the Middle East and North Africa are, are Muslim. Well, how did that happen? You know, it, it wasn't because silver-tongued uh, preachers were coming out of the Arabian Peninsula and converting people to Islam. It's because there were armies coming out of the <laughs> coming out of the Arabian Peninsula uh, on conquest. And they made it all the way, actually, to Spain eventually. Uh, and you know what? Europe really didn't respond. Europe really didn't respond. The Christian world really didn't respond to it. Uh, it's really not until, I believe it's the 12th century, 12th or 13th century, where you have disputes over Jerusalem and over the access that, that uh, pilgrims have to the Holy Land. And, you know, there are historians who have basically, again, disputed the, the narratives. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking uh, specifically of Thomas Madden, who teaches at St. Louis University. And you know, he contends that if, if you really look at Islamic history books up until the 20th century, they really don't talk a lot about the Crusades that much that the Crusades really don't become an issue in the Islamic world until m much more recently. Uh, and that really, for most of the time, let's say between when the Crusades happened and, again, our, our contemporary era, the Crusades were one among many wars that were being fought. And a big reason why they didn't pay a lot of attention to them is that they won most of them. You know, outside of the First Crusade, uh, the Christians lost each successive uh, crusade after that. Uh, the Europeans were never really able to make a, a very firm, uh, you know, beachhead, if you will, in 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 Palestine. That it's really not until again more recent times, when you did have European colonization, uh, mainly by way of the British, in in the Middle East, and it's the British actually that started talking a lot about the Crusades and European domination and, and brought that history with them. And again, it's maybe the the people of the people of the nineteenth and twentieth century who are feeling oppressed, who now are are again receiving the history in some cases not from their own historians, but but from the Brits, who are now, you know, applying uh, kind of all these the the narrative, if you will, the received narrative to their present reality, and again, maybe it's accurate and maybe it's not, and again, it's not a matter of defending the Crusades, but saying that maybe it's a bit more complicated, and maybe history is a bit more complicated, and it's not as simple as we've been led to believe. Uh, you know, I also think of you know Galileo. Is another one, you know. Usually, in terms of again the church's relationship with science, Galileo is usually brought up. And again, you know, I could do a whole episode on Galileo. And again, all I all I will say about that is that if you really look at what happened, really look at the history, you'll see that it's very different than the narrative that we've been presented. Because most of the narrative we've been presented 
does not derive from the time of Galileo or the so-called Galileo affair, but actually comes from writings of about 100 to 150 years later of secular writers who are looking to criticize the church, but who aren't, who don't necessarily uh, know what they're talking about, quite frankly. Now, when it, again, when it comes to Galileo, I don't know any commentator, be they even the staunchest Catholic commentator, who would say the church handled that situation correctly. So again, it's not a matter of defending, but it's a matter of saying what really happened. And the fact that it wasn't so much that the church was disputing whether the earth revolved around the sun or the sun revolved around the earth. It was basically saying, you know, Galileo, you don't have proof. This is a very interesting theory. And it, it may be very compelling or it may not be. But the bottom line is you don't have proof. Please don't publish until you actually have concrete proof of what you're talking about. Now, Galileo publishes anyway. And part of the reason why he did that was that his very good friend got elected Pope. And he figured, well, my, good, my best friend is elected Pope. I shouldn't have a problem. Well, he still had a problem. And it doesn't, the, the, the whole narrative doesn't take into account the fact that even at the time, you had people who today are canonized saints who were on different sides of the issue. Okay, you have Robert Bellarmine, who thought that Galileo should be prosecuted and that his writings should be withdrawn and suppressed. And you had Francis de Sales, who basically felt there was no problem. They didn't see what, the, what really the issue was, that Galileo shouldn't be, uh, his writings shouldn't be suppressed. Now, even Robert Bellarmine, in believing that Galileo you know, should be prosecuted for publishing his, his works, basically also said, look, he continues his research, if he finds out, if he gets that concrete proof we're looking for, okay, then we have to go back to the drawing board. Faith and reason are not in conflict with each other. That was, you know, Robert Bellarmine, because he is a saint, so he does know Catholic doctrine pretty well. Faith and reason are not in conflict with each other. If there appears to be a conflict, it's because we're either not doing the science correctly or we've interpreted Scripture incorrectly. And you've got to figure out what it is. So if there is concrete proof that the earth revolves around the sun, then we have to go back and we have to look at our interpretation of Scripture again and rethink it. Uh, but if it's not, then maybe Galileo has to keep on working or other scientists have to keep on working uh, you know, in order to perfect uh, their theories and to perfect their work. And again, I, I just end this little segment by saying I don't know anyone who would say that the church necessarily handled the Galileo affair correctly. Okay, there are many, I've heard many very staunch Catholics 
basically say that. That, yeah, it didn't, not a good look. <laughs> didn't handle that well. Uh, while kind of bringing up these other points that I have also brought up. You know, the, the other thing that really puts a lie to the idea that the church is anti-science is that if, you know, you go back to Albert the Great in the, in the 13th century, he's considered one of the fathers of modern zoology because he studied, he literally had a zoo in his backyard and he studied animals. He studied their behavior. Okay, again, they didn't have a scientific, scientific method the way we understand it, but they understood, you know, observing and writing down what you saw. Okay, they, they at least understood that much and that's what he did. And he actually ended up debunking many kind of crackpot theories about how about animal behavior that came to the Middle Ages through antiquity. You know, you have Gregor Mendel, who's considered the one of the fathers of uh, modern genetics, and you have you know George Lemaitre, who is considered. Well, now he's not considered. He is the the founder of the the formulator of the the Big Bang theory. So you know, no, we're not anti science. We're not anti science. Faith and reason are not incompatible. They are compatible with one another. Okay, so beware the narrative. Beware the narrative at all costs. You know, we as as Disciples of Christ, in a sense, follow a narrative. We believe that history does follow a narrative. It's a narrative of sin and redemption, of our first parents sinning and breaking their relationship with God, and God constantly reaching out through the prophets in order to bring them back, and then finally sending his son Jesus and that history, through Jesus, is reaching an endpoint. History as we know it, as we understand it. Time as we know it and understand it. And that everything somehow, the whole arc of history, is kind of lurching toward that, that moment and that event. And But the difference is that there's a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns. And it's not a straight line. And when you're looking at all these different events of history, it's not always easy to discern you know, where exactly is God's plan in all this. It's not something we can necessarily see so clearly. And there are going to be a lot of intermediate causes and effects that drive history. That yes, God, you know, is providential. God is involved, but God doesn't force himself. And God is patient. <laughs> and God is merciful. And God is but God is also just. And and so we have to be careful to draw so many conclusions too quickly. And basically, we need to avoid simple answers and simple solutions that might be very comforting to us, but in the end are just faults and 
really not lined up with reality. And so, yes, beware the narrative. Beware the narrative. Understand that you know life, the world, is a complicated place. And while God is here with us, God guides us. And yes, I, again, I do, I do believe history is marching in a particular direction. Uh, the narrative, the final narrative, is not really going to be written for quite a while. And how we get there, in a way, is still a mystery. And it's something that's been kind of closed off to us. Our Lord has given us hints. And he's given us, you know, indications. Uh, but he's purposely kind of kept things a little veiled. You know, Re- Revelation, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the apocalypse it has to do with unveiling and showing. But they're only glimpses that we've received. It's really not the full picture. And so beware. <laughs> beware the narrative. And beware being a slave to the narrative. And uh, just put your trust in Jesus Christ. Know that he is the one that, in the end, is control in, in control of the narrative. He's the one writing the story, if you will. And uh, we are blessed to be characters and players and protagonists in that story. So I will leave that here for right now. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. That'll do it for this episode. I have to be quite honest with you. I, you know, I don't know. This has been a this was a tough episode to put together, and I'm still not a hundred percent happy with it. But I want to just get it out there. I feel like it's this topic has been on my chest for a while, and while I think I could have done a better job with this, um, I think it's as good as I'm going to get for right now. So I really, but I'm sure we'll revisit and I'll revisit the issue. Uh, in different ways and in various ways as we as we move along. So uh, coming up, we'll have the regular weekend edition, again, either on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Now, beginning on Saturday, we are going to begin our novena to St. John Bosco. So along with the regular episodes, uh, I will be posting for the next, you know, beginning on, on the 22nd and ending on the 30th, uh, shorter episodes, kind of special episodes, but that will be a novena to St. John Bosco that you could pray along with. And so, you know, it's a Catholic tradition to pray nine days before a particular feast, or sometimes there's a, a, a prayers that are meant to be prayed over a series of nine days. It doesn't have to end on a on a feast day particularly. Uh, but when we have a particular intention that we want to pray for, in a more intense way, and we want the special aid of a particular saint or there's some particular devotion uh, to our Lord or to Our Lady that under which we want to kind of throw this intention to, we can do that. And so it's you know customary. The, the big ones in the Salesian family, obviously, are the Novena to St. John Bosco that's coming up beginning on Saturday, but also there's the Novena to uh, Mary Help of Christians in, in May, and the Novena of the Immaculate Conception in uh, December, and uh, the Christmas Novena as well is even that that's a little more universal is also something that you know we kind of hold special in our in our hearts. But definitely, we're going to begin with this uh, Novena to Saint John Bosco beginning on 
Saturday. So stay tuned for that. Keep your eyes open. Okay. So again, thank you very much for listening. I, I really appreciate all of you and are and praying for you. And uh, please, again, pray for me. And you know my, my prayers and, and concerns for all of you. And uh, really, God love you. And uh, hope, hopefully you'll be back. And uh, we'll be able to have one of these chats again soon. All right. God bless all of you. Bye-bye.